All right. Good morning. Welcome morning. to a very special unscheduled edition of the GPPR podcast. My name is Justin Goss. I'm the editor-in-chief at GPPR. I am joined, as always, by senior online editor Kevin Barcelo. And today we are thrilled to have a very special guest, the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor, Thomas Perez. How are you doing? Welcome to the Hilltop. I'm great, and it's always great to be here at Georgetown. So you're about to give the Whittington Lecture. Have you had to give any formal lectures like this before? Uh, I've had the privilege of doing this in a number of places, and, and what I like to talk about is how we build an economy that works for everyone, how we make sure that uh, everyone who works hard and plays by the rules can realize their highest and best dreams. Can't wait to hear it. We're, yeah, let's talk about that a, a little bit later on. But let's talk about something that's right in your wheelhouse that I'm sure mm -hmm. you never get to talk about, the job numbers. Yes. Um, so job numbers have been mostly pretty optimistic lately. Unemployment's been down. Labor force participation has been up. Um, but there's still a little bit of a climate of pessimism throughout the country related to um, the modest economic growth, the modest growth in workers' wages. Do you think we're all the way back from the recession, or do we still have work that we need to do? Well, I think we've made tremendous progress. It's important to to level set where we were, where we've come, and then talk about where we need to go. When this president took office, the econ economy was hemorrhaging jobs, 2.3 million in the three months before the president took office. The unemployment rate was heading toward 10%. The auto industry was on life support, and frankly, most of the Republicans were saying, pull the plug. You know, here we are now, the auto industry is back, the unemployment rate is 4.9%. We've had 71 months in a row of, uh, of job growth. Uh, you look at the census data, uh, last year alone, families saw their income go up by more than 5%, which is the largest increase on record. It cuts across every racial economic line, rural America as well. Uh, and so we're making progress. And uh, having said that, uh, there's undeniable unfinished business. We've got to make sure that the wind that's at our back results in shared prosperity for everyone and not simply prosperity for a few. And I, I think the economy still continues to be out of balance. Uh, for too many people. Uh, the wealth has been concentrated in the hands of a few and and, and the angst that you correctly identify, uh, Kevin, is angst that results for many from um, a sense that uh, I'm working hard and playing by the rules and not sharing in the uh, spoils of my labor. And is that an effect that you think existed pre-recession or was just exacerbated by the recession? Well, you look at the issue of uh, stubborn real wage growth, and that issue predates the recession. Um, you know, from the period of time after World War II until really about 1980, uh, productivity and wage growth went hand in hand, and people shared in the pie of prosperity that they were helping uh, to bake, and, and union density was uh, going up. And then in 1980, you and, and over the last 35 years or so, you've seen a decoupling of productivity and real wage growth, with the exception of the late 90s, uh, where you had 4% unemployment, really tight labor markets, and um, some sustained real wage growth. And, and there are a number of different factors that uh, economists have looked at to explain that, not the least of which is the decline in labor union density. Workers don't have the leverage in the workplace that they once had. And, and some studies have shown that about a third of this, uh, the challenges confronting middle class workers is the result of the decline in union density. I, I'm a big believer that workers that have a voice are workers that can uh, really uh, obtain shared prosperity. If you're, if you're not 
If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And that's uh, frequently the case for all too many workers. So uh, I'm heartened by what I'm seeing now because we're starting to see some real wage growth. Um, you know, when you have virtually no inflation and you have um, the wage growth over the last year has been um, improving from what it was at the end of the recession. So we're making progress, but uh, the, the phenomenon on the wage front that you've been asking about is really a 30-plus year uh, phenomenon, and that's why we need to continue investments in infrastructure that create good middle-class jobs. We need to continue to invest in our human capital because uh, we've got to prepare people for not only the jobs of today, but the jobs of tomorrow. Absolutely. So to the point of labor force protections or lack thereof, we've seen the rise of the gig economy with industries like Uber and Handy, which have created a number of jobs and have revolutionized certain industries. But at the same time, they don't offer many benefits or no benefits in some cases or very strong labor protections to their employees or in the case of sure. Uber, sometimes private contractors as they're treated. Um, do you think the gig economy is more positive, more negative? Do you think uh, government needs to be coming up with new policies in order to make the gig economy work better for the country? We've had a number of discussions about this issue. Uh, we, we held a three-day summit uh, that we called the Future of Work. Uh, I've been doing some work uh, with the Aspen Institute and uh, with Senator Mark Warner on these issues. And uh, a couple things about the on-demand economy, gig economy, people call it different things. Number one, it's not new. I mean, you talk to construction workers, they've been working gig to gig for generations. Number two, when you look at this emerging on-demand economy, it's about one and a half percent. Depending on what study you look at, it's, it's the, the credible studies are, have it somewhere in the one to two percent of the economy. So it's a conspicuous one or two percent that commands a lot of attention, but it's one or two percent nonetheless. And I, I think um, what we've talked about in our conferences and what I've talked about is uh, I welcome innovation. Innovation has been our middle name, and we should never be fearful of innovation. Um, you know, and, and technological development is, is just something, again, that's our middle name, whether it's uh, the Industrial Revolution or the Internet. Uh, to me, the key is to make sure that innovation is inclusive innovation that provides opportunities for people. So it's, it's great to have the freedom to work when you want or when you don't want, but if you get in a car accident and you don't have insurance, you don't have health insurance, you don't have workers' comp, uh, it's not so great anymore. And so uh, a big part of the conversation we were having and continue to have at the Future Work um, Dialogue is about how do you build a social compact 2.0? And I don't think you're going to get answers to this overnight. Uh, you, you, look at, Darn. you look at the social compact of the 20th century. Um, those conversations started in the late 1800s, and it literally took 30-plus years for the social compact of the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Social Security Act, and other things of the 1930s. And so uh, we're already starting to see some innovation at state and local levels. You look at what Seattle's trying to do, for instance, um, in, in this gig context. And um, there have been a number of uh, academics that have proposed uh, a third type of employee uh, as opposed to just independent contractors and employees. And, and those are worthy of consideration, but I'm not prepared to endorse or uh, unequivocally poo-poo um, any of these things. But to me, the, the, the principle that should guide our work is um, that we need to have innovation that really is inclusive. And, uh, and, and you know, you can't walk across the road without a, a safety net. 
Absolutely. To that to that point of inclusivity, and and you mentioned preparing uh, workers and laborers for the for the mm -hmm. economy of tomorrow. Uh, more recently in the news cycle, last week, the Perkins Act, uh, which helped lower income workers gain career technical education, CTE, moved a step closer to reauthorization, uh, which is great, great news mm -hmm. in my opinion, um, where these, it helps uh, for our listeners, it helps lower income workers obtain vocational training um, sure. for certain, certain high paying jobs like uh, being an electrician, for instance. Um, what do... What more do you think government can do where studies have shown fairly unequivocally that workers who have some form of post-secondary education sure. beyond just a high school diploma can do to make sure that the economy works for more of us? Sure. Well, education is the great equalizer. You look at the, stat the statistics and they overwhelmingly show that. The, the, the more education you have, the greater the odds of getting a good middle-class job. And what we've been doing at the Labor Department, in addition to obviously supporting efforts to reauthorize Perkins, is we've doubled down in unprecedented ways on expanding apprenticeship. We've invested uh, grant money in competitive grant processes because apprenticeship, quite frankly, is the other college, except without the debt. I'm sure public policy students are familiar with the concept of debt. And uh, and, and what we see, for every federal dollar that we invest in apprenticeship, there's a $27 return on investment. Uh, that's why we've had bipartisan consensus in Congress. Um, and in a Congress that's broken, uh, we got 90 million new dollars for apprenticeship. And, and the thing about apprenticeship is, the, um, I think the average person, when you think of apprenticeship, you think of an electrician or a plumber, someone in the skilled trades. And, and frankly, the skilled trades and the union movement have a lot of the original patents on apprenticeship. But what we're doing with apprenticeship is we're expanding the reach of it. So uh, IT, healthcare, cybersecurity, uh, we're, 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 we're not only expanding the reach of it, but we're expanding the, the geographic footprint. We want to make sure apprenticeship is available in every zip code. So we're working with uh, young kids in the Philadelphia public school system, more often than not kids of color, who have a fluency with gadgets. Uh, when my iPhone goes on the fritz, I, I don't call Apple, I go to my 14-year-old because he's pretty fluent with gadgets. So you take that fluency with gadgets and you translate it into a middle-class career. Uh, Zurich Insurance is a you know, Fortune 500 company. We've worked with them in Illinois to establish an apprenticeship program for claims adjusters. So it has application in every context and it gives you those credentials. And for many, it leads to a four-year degree um, and it really shows us that uh, you can have various pathways to success. And it's a first cousin of what we're trying to do with uh, Perkins reauthorization. We want to make sure people are either college ready or career ready. And, uh, and that's why I'm so excited about the work we're doing in apprenticeship. Certainly, but apprenticeship in the United States compared to some other countries, especially European countries, has tended to progress at fairly low rates compared to other sub-baccalaureate levels of education. What's different about the government's endorsement of apprenticeships sure. at this time that you well, did, absolutely, did you and you know, part of it is that we devalue. Part of the challenge we have with apprenticeship is that we, as a nation, devalued it over the course of a number of years, and that's not a partisan observation. You know, everybody devalued it, and so what we're undertaking now is a unprecedented partnership with business, with educators, with uh, parents, 
because you got to reorient parents on apprenticeship. They think uh, they think manufacturing is dirty and ugly. No, yeah, let's let's go look at a, you know somebody in the uh, advanced manufacturing context is far more likely to be walking around with an iPad than a screwdriver, and uh, and so uh, we've seen our work in apprenticeship take off. The president set a, a very ambitious goal of doubling the number of registered apprentices in the United States. We, we did an event recently with folks from Switzerland and Germany and elsewhere because we're taking foreign countries that have a U.S. footprint and we're not only taking their know-how but we're using their apprenticeship model. And so we're transforming uh, apprenticeship and that's part of building what I call the skill superhighway for the 21st century that has various on-ramps and off-ramps for people, uh, including uh, very robust on-ramps for apprenticeship. And we're making real progress. We measure this because registered apprenticeships mean uh, it's, it's a quality control thing. It's the underwriter laboratory uh, seal. So when you plug in that toaster, you're not going to get electrocuted. It's, it's the good housekeeping seal of approval. You want to make sure apprenticeships, if you're an employer, that a person went through something that gives them those core competencies to succeed. And that's that's where we come in. And, and it's been a remarkable partnership. Uh, Republican and Democratic governors have embraced this. It's, it's, a, it's a real opportunity. Certainly. Wrapping up, so you're going to be speaking momentarily on an economy of shared prosperity. What do you think that looks like compared to what the status quo looks like right now? Well, I think we've made tremendous progress. You know, we're better off now than we were eight years ago. We've climbed out of the worst ditch of our lifetime. We're on the road and we're moving. And we're moving in a real, uh, I think, constructive direction. But what we have to do is make sure, again, that, as I said, that the wind that, that, that's at our back um, uh, results in shared prosperity for all and not just uh, prosperity for a few. And, and the way to do that is to invest in our human capital, uh, to have sound public policy that um, understands that if you work a full-time job in this country, you can't survive on seven and a quarter an hour. We need to build the social compact for the 21st century, which for so many families means uh, sensible paid leave and child care policies. Uh, when a person's uh, child care bill exceeds their rent or their mortgage, something's out of whack. Uh, when uh, we're the only industrialized nation on the earth that doesn't have some form of paid leave, um, we're not keeping up with the changing times. And, and when I hear criticisms about labor force participation, um, the two most important things we can do to um, increase labor force participation are the things that the folks who criticize us oppose. Sensible paid leave and child care policy. So that's how we build shared prosperity. We build shared prosperity by listening to the kitchen table issues that keep people up at night and, and wages and retirement security and, and you know daycare expenses and uh, paid leave. These are the things that keep people up at night. Other countries have figured this out we should be able to as well. And that's how we bring about shared prosperity. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter at GP Policy Review.